Gen X Playback, episode number two. Hey everybody, welcome again to Gen X Playback. This is now episode two in our broadcast on what we loved about the uh, 70s, 80s, and 90s. My name is Sean Scott. And I am Scott Sean. At least that's how our dad always referred to us. Our dad always seemed to get our names wrong. And actually, at one time when I was very small, I thought my name was Sean Scott High. So uh, we are the Brothers High. And we hope you had a chance to listen to last week on our re- on our review of the uh, countdown from June 11th, 1983. So in because Gen X pop culture has so much to offer, we didn't want to stay focused primarily on just music. So we want to talk about some of the other things that were important to us in our lives. And so we're going to focus today on television, more more specifically, going back to the 70s, the late 70s, as we focus around the era, era of 1978 and 1979 television. At, you know, part of the reason why we chose this time was because of our ages. So from 1970 to 1979, I am 10 and 11 years old. You, Scott, you're, you were seven and eight at that time. It. You were you were older, uh, so you were starting to watch some of the adult, you know, uh, you know the the not just the kid shows, I mm-hmm. guess as I, I would say it. And you know, I am not quite in the teen years, so I've not advanced beyond uh, you know things that might be for family entertainment. So this was kind of the zone that we thought that we the sweet spot that we might hit where you and I probably were watching a lot of the same shows. Yes, and one of the things that we were also limited to is we had bedtime. Right, exactly. <laughs> as, as many of as many of you Gen Xers also had. So many nights we weren't allowed to go to uh, stay up past nine o'clock. On, on a school night, that was it. it nine o'clock was the end of uh, television viewing and off to bed. So we typically would watch TV around around the TV as a family for for some of these nights, particularly with some of the shows that we're going to talk about specifically. And a lot of the shows on this top 20, uh, you know, the Nielsen ratings for, for the top 20 in 1978-79, those are shows that we were able to enjoy later as they went into syndication and reruns, which is another thing that we're kind of going to go over with, with regards to TV. And so we got to watch those shows later on as we were a little bit older, probably could understand them a little bit better than we may have at our at our young, uh, you know, young ages that we were back in the late 70s. So, uh you know, kind of gave us a, a new perspective on on just what people were talking about because yeah, you know, when we start talking about a, a show like Three's Company, which is which was very big back then, uh, you know, to our ages at that time, we didn't know what they were talking. I, about. I didn't get the humor at all. Yeah, I mean, we didn't really understand what the, what the shows were about. But then, as you watch them in reruns and syndication, then you, you say, okay, yeah, I understand why these shows are funny. So right, exactly. And as far as you know, Gen X in general, I think we were a generation that was really raised on television. Um, probably the first generation that got a heavy dose of television uh, where it, I, I don't know a household that didn't have TV when we were growing up. And one of the interesting things about the Gen X era, the 1970s in particular, you were limited to a few channels. You, you had the three major networks and then you would have this UHF channel that you'd switch over to and sometimes get some local programming. But for the most part, you were limited to ABC, CBS, and NBC and as a result, you watch the same things that your friends watched. And we were we were lucky in our household because we actually were one of the few of our friends, at least, that we had cable channels of cable at its time, which was about 12, 13 channels. It was. It gave us access to the Philadelphia channels, uh, especially, you know, some of the, uh, you know, we would get the Philadelphia news, we get the Philadelphia sports, but also with that, we get some of the nice local 
after-school programming that the uh, stations will put on. And I know that's something that we're probably going to spend an episode on on later, which was uh, the cartoons of Generation X, which, let's face it, aren't going to be that much different than the cartoons of the Baby Boomers because we loved a lot of the same things because those, those cartoons got a new life in, in our generation. And it amazes me how when you know something was well done, how much because my kids watch watched them when they were small and they loved them too. Right, so the, the, the Bugs Bunnies of yes. the world. It's you know, like, like Scott said, it's it is a whole separate podcast that we will get into eventually. But for now, what we're going to focus on with uh, today's episode is uh, the standard network television, and also we're going to sprinkle in a few of the, uh, the the daytime shows as well. Okay, so Sean's going to run down the list of the of the top twenty shows uh, Nielsen ratings from 1978-1979 and we're going to pick some of them out and we'll talk about them so but hopefully some of these shows may may draw some good memories some of these shows you may forget about completely but I think you'll recognize everyone that's on the list so you know before I get started on the list just give you a little bit of information with how dominant uh, ABC was with this list so out of the top 20 ABC had 13 of the top 20 shows CBS had six and NBC only had one. So uh, keep that in mind as we, we go uh, into this. So coming into number 20, a big show, at least for us, the Dukes of Hazard. Dukes of Hazard debuted in January of 1979. So it's pretty new to the list. And the fact that it is this high up on the list is pretty impressive. Went on to have an outstanding run. Uh, I, I think most Gen Xers have a soft spot in their heart for the Dukes of Hazard. You know, Bo and Luke Duke and Daisy and Uncle Jesse and... Enos and Boss Hog, Roscoe P. Coltrane, you know, it, a classic show. And the thing I, when you watch the Dukes of Hazzard, when you, when they went into, if you watch them over the, the entire run, they sort of evolved into a little bit more of a, I would say more of a slapstick type TV show, but that first season was, was, was pretty well written in terms of storylines and there was a little bit more, it had a little bit more of a darker humor than what it eventually what it eventually grew into, which was, you know, as little kids, yeah, we thought uh, Roscoe P. Coltrane and Boss Hogg and and uh, Cooter, and we thought those guys were hilarious. Mm-hmm. And they became even goofier as the show went on, especially Roscoe. But in the beginning, Roscoe was not known as as the bumbling sheriff. He was actually, a, a, you know, him and Enos were not, you know, terribly uh, inefficient as law as lawmen. But the, the you know the show had like I said had a little bit more of a darker side, and I remember our cousin, uh, my cousin or our cousin Bud, going to his house and watching the Dukes of Hazard for the very first time, and it had just come out. He was the one that told me about it, and I was, we watched it, and I was I thought it was so funny, and then it just kind of grew from there, and it was one of those shows that we sat down and watched as a family every week when it came on. So. It's very interesting that you bring up the story with our cousin Bud because we, you and I don't talk before we do the, the podcast and that was actually the reference I was going to make because I had never heard of the show and I remember you came home from that weekend over at Bud's and you were just raving about this show. It was this, this show you called about the Dukes and I remember in my mind I'm thinking what is this like uh, King Arthur Knights of the Round Table I, I, I didn't get it and then you showed the following week you're like you gotta watch you gotta watch it so I, I watched it and I was instantly hooked and I thought this is one of the greatest shows I've ever seen 
Yeah, you know, and and when little eight year old Scott is adamant about <laughs> about watching a show, make make sure you tune. Oh, in. Oh yeah, absolutely. But, yeah, so, this, one of our favorites. So that was number twenty on the list. Number nineteen, and this is a show I don't know how many of you are going to remember, but it was a nighttime soap opera called Soap, and it is something that was definitely an adult uh, subject matter with the show. It was a comedy. It had uh, two sisters, Jessica Tate. Mary Campbell, uh, there, you know, Jessica has a husband, Chester, Chester Tate. I remember Chester at one point, he loses his memory and he finally gets it back because he sees a cheddar plate. So cheddar plate becomes Chester Tate. Uh, but so Mary had a husband, Bert. Bert was kind of a simpleton. Uh, you know, there were some, some famous people were on the show. Yeah. Uh, this is really Billy Crystal's first major role. He played a character called Jody Dallas. And if I remember correctly, Jody was the first gay character ever out on network television so it, you know, it was kind of monumental at the time yeah and the show itself was formatted on the parody of the daytime afternoon soap operas where it was sort of these outrageous storylines but it was done with a with a comedic edge to it and we watched it when it started to hit syndication and reruns right didn't watch it when it was out at not this at time. all nope it, heard people you know heard that abc would hype this as Oh, tune in for soap at I think nine thirty or ten o'clock or whatever, and then, uh, but when it started to come out in reruns around nineteen eighty three or nineteen eighty four was when I really got to watch a show for the very first time, and it does kind of it hooks you in because it it just it's a continuous storyline like the like the daytime soap operas it just keeps going it's like not like the sitcoms where it's a one off where you're you're covering one episode one subject where there's a beginning, a middle, and an end. This was actually an ongoing for the entire season, and it, the storyline would keep going. Right. And, you know, for me, the, the main character that I, I knew from the show was Benson. Uh, so Robert Guillaume played the sarcastic butler Benson. And when I went back and watched the syndication, he was hilarious. Uh, he, and then they spun him off as, as the character Benson. Then he became the head of household for a governor mm-hmm. and uh, had the same sarcastic quick wit about him and probably the breakout star uh, at least on uh, television as far as you know having a spinoff was Robert Guillaume and for me I think as as a kid what drew me in when I actually did start watching the show was Bob and Chuck yeah yeah that's right <laughs> you know you're talking about you're taking the comedy down to its simplest forms but I thought there's I thought the well what, explain what were Bob okay, and Chuck so Bob and Chuck was was one of the sons he always carried around a um, a, a talking Dummy. Mm-hmm. So he's a ventriloquist, very good ventriloquist, and he would say everything that Bob couldn't say, and so Chuck would always have these ridiculous comments, and uh, he would like he would say whatever Bob couldn't say, and mm-hmm. and he more or less became the voice of, but it was he just, was he was downright mean, and he was yeah <laughs> he was very sarcastic and angry and mean yeah. and would and would rip people to shreds and. Yeah, as a kid, that's great. It's funny. Right, exactly. Okay, so that's number 19 was soap. Number 18 was One Day at a Time. I don't know how many of you out there remember One Day at a Time. This was one of Norman Lear's shows. It was a show that uh, debuted in 1975, went on through uh, 1984, so had a nice run, very successful. It was... um, a show about a single mother who was raising up two daughters. Uh, it was her two daughters were Mackenzie Phillips, a very famous uh, daughter of John Phillips from the Mamas and Papas, who right before she came on the show, uh, she actually was the biggest star to sign onto the show because she had just come off 
the big movie, American Graffiti. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you have you have Mackenzie Phillips on there. Um, Bonnie Tyler is the mother. Mm-hmm. The Anne Romano, or as she was always referred to as Ms. Romano on the show, because you know she's the single mother back out in the workforce. And then a a, a young Valerie Bertinelli gets her her debut role on the show, and eventually. She becomes the biggest star of the show, right? If if not for if not uh, the Barbara character, Valerie Bertinelli's character, it's the Schneider character. Yes, Schneider. Yes, you can't. Schneider the super. If, for those of you who remember, he was you know Schneider always had like the you know the cigarettes rolled up in the sleeve. He had the the pencil thin mustache and uh, you know kind of the the had had the utility belt on with uh-huh. the, with the tools. And the thing that I thought that was funny about Schneider is he was like this big ladies man, even though he looked pretty pretty awful. He how many how many people work on fixing toilets while wearing a denim vest? Hard to do. And hey, pull it off. Well, he was stylish, you yeah. know, and it was it definitely was the nineteen seventies. And he also reminded me of the guy who always cut our hair at the barber shop. I thought he I thought they looked the same. So, well, yeah. there you go. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Absolutely, You're just tying it all together. So one day at a time, uh, and, you know, in in many ways, I think it's a show that's remembered more for the controversy uh, surrounding uh, Mackenzie Phillips because while she was on the show. She had a, a very well publicized on and off drug program, uh, a problem. I'm sorry. Uh, so a lot of people, when they look back, they think of of that part of it. But this was this is a pretty big show. I mean, it had a nice long run, and you know, like I said, eventually, you know, it was the breakout uh, show for Valerie Bertinelli, who became, you know, in a lot of ways, America's sweetheart. Eventually, Mrs. Van Halen, uh, Mary Zeta Van Halen, uh, and uh, but. Huge show uh, back at, at that time. And in 1978, uh, eight, 1979, still coming in at number 18. So number 17 on our list. And so of those uh, other shows, I should point out, the Dukes of Hazard was a CBS show. Soap was an ABC show. One Day at a Time, another CBS show, because that's where Norman Lear's right. shows tended to appear. Next up, we have a very uh, popular show, The Love Boat, uh, an ABC show, which ran from 76 through 1990. So we're talking... Very early on when this show is taking off. Yeah, and this was one of the powerhouse nights for ABC, which they really did dominate primetime at this point. This uh, The Love Boat was Saturday night. And, I mean, who would have thought that Saturday night would have, would become a, a dominant uh, TV night? Because typically on the weekends, people go out. You know, Saturday night for some other networks was kind of like the kiss of death. If your show got moved to Saturday night, chances are you weren't going to make it through the season. Right, exactly. And, and yet ABC somehow kind of turned it on its ear and made The Love Boat must must watch TV. And the, the, the rating here at the end of this season doesn't indicate how the show does grow in the ratings as, as time progresses. By the time you hit the early 80s, now you're talking about, uh, and, and for a really difficult time slot, which was Saturday night, and uh, that it was able to crack the top 20. I think in many ways it was successful because it was a show the entire family could watch. So you had uh, something for the parents where they could watch, and they always had the, the the love interest. There was some type of romance afoot, you know, hence it's called The Love Boat. But there always there's also was the slapstick comedy that mm-hmm. was in there. I, I found Isaac and Gopher and Doc hilarious. Yes. So I... I personally didn't care, you know, at that age, I wasn't interested in, in what the romantic interest uh, of the show, what was going on, but I liked those three guys. They were funny. But, and also it took the formula of taking stars or TV stars off of other shows and having them portray other characters on the love boat. 
So they would actually bring people in from, say, like Mr. Brady from the mm-hmm. Brady Bunch. He would come in. Uh, Tony Tennille from Captain and Tennille. She would come in. The Pointer Sisters, I remember. Charo would make an appearance. Yeah. And it was, I think, for you know, for, for, for viewers, you could say, oh, yeah, I know who that is. I, you're, not, you're not putting in some unknown actor. A lot of times, people that were on the show, the main characters in the storyline, everybody knew who they were. They were just playing a different character. That may have been my favorite part of the show. It, it was nice to see the cameos from shows that you liked somewhere else. And you know, you talk about uh, uh, Mr. Brady. I remember when Marsha Brady made an appearance on the show. So you know, this was all every week. There was always some star from another show making an appearance. And you had talked about uh, Norman Lear being being such a, a vital producer for One Day at a Time. And let's talk about Aaron Spelling because right. this was this was his baby, and he's going to be talked about again as we go through this top twenty. So there's going to be a couple of big names uh, that we're going to talk about. You know, we'll talk about you know Aaron Spelling. Uh, Gary Marshall is going to figure very prominently, and each of these individuals had a formula. So Aaron Spelling, his formula, as we'll see with some of these other shows, was was selling a lifestyle in a way. It was fantasy. It was dreaming big. Extravagant. Extravagant. It's, you know, Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous right. uh, was kind of what he was selling. And it doesn't matter what your life's like for a half hour. You can dream and you can be on the love boat. I think that's a good, I think that's a good uh, analogy because Aaron Spelling, more or less Los Angeles-based producer, uh, family raised in the lap of luxury in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. So there, there was definitely an opulence in LA at that time. Norman Lear. Brooklyn, mm-hmm. New York, focus on the family, keep the keep the storylines short and tight and intimate. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a I think that's a good I think that's a good um, you know comparison. Okay, so that's Love Boat at number seventeen. Another the next show, uh, show number sixteen, an ABC show, a show I did not watch was Barney Miller, and Barney Miller was once again a show that wasn't geared towards kids. Right. So had I been in, uh, in my 20s when the show came out, I probably would have had a different perspective on it. But it was the uh, it, it was set in New York City, NYPD. Uh, it was a uh, you know an uh, you know detectives kind of talking and the, you know some wisecracks and back and forth. I, I remember you know the, the character Fish, mm-hmm. a Vagoda. As many people might remember from The Godfather, uh, a Vagoda who actually got his own spinoff, Fish, mm-hmm. after because of this show. It, it, I understand why it was popular. It's just not something that when I was 10 years old, I would have been into. M- myself also, and I didn't really watch it when it went into reruns. But I think, I think you know, it's fair to point out that Barney Miller won a boatload of awards. You know, critically, it was very well received. And there may be people listening to this podcast that could say, what are you talking about? Barney Miller is one of the greatest shows of all I'm time. Sure, I'm sure there are people that would say that. But it, from, you know, from our perspective, it just I think it was over our head. And we, it just never caught on to what we were interested in in terms of... Because it was a comedy. Sure. But it's definitely highbrow comedy. Like it, There was stuff in there that we just didn't get. Right. Right. It, and that's, that's just the way it is. So that you'll see the, on this list, there'll be shows that are targeted towards adults. There's shows that are targeted for the entire family, and there's some that are probably targeted for a younger generation. You know, I would say Duke's a Hazard, while it it had an appeal to our parents, was more probably targeted to us. Right. You know, they wanted that younger demographic. They wanted 12-year-old boys to watch it because a big thing that they did with the Duke's a Hazard was they sold a lot of of merchandise. Mm -hmm. So 
I don't think a, a 30-year-old that might enjoy Barney Miller is going to go out and buy a Dukes of Hazzard lunchbox, like <laughs> I think I did. So, yeah. you know, that's... And I don't remember seeing a Barney Miller lunchbox anywhere, so... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I doubt there was. So that's why we say, you know, when we're looking at this perspective, we're looking at it as, as Gen Xers. This is through our eyes at the time. Uh, once again, not... Not a bad show. I, I'm I'm sure that uh, you know people have a lot of fond memories, but you know that's my impression. Okay. So uh, number fifteen on the list isn't a show. Uh, it was uh, the ABC Sunday Night Movie. So every Sunday, ABC would would show a movie, and it would kind of rotate. Keep in mind, uh, kids out there, we didn't have a VCR. Mm-mm. We we did not have access, at least in our household, to uh, any type of HBO or Showtime. I don't even know if they existed. Showtime debuted in 1978. That okay, was one of the notes go. that I had. There that, you was, go. that was when it debuted. HBO was around a little bit before that, but in terms of viewership, it was still in its infancy. It now, we eventually got HBO right. uh, in the early 80s, uh, and the, subsequently we switched over to the local version of HBO uh, out of Philadelphia, which was uh, called Prism. So it became a thing. Mm-hmm. But in 1978, 1979, if you wanted to watch a movie, and you didn't go out to the movie theater, you watched it on television. Right. And the ABC Sunday Night Movie, each of the networks had their night for a movie. I know CBS, had, I think it was Wednesday night, and I uh, believe NBC might have been Friday night at one time. But they all had they all had a night where they would show a movie on, on their during their prime time. Mm-hmm. And I know this isn't this era because the movie came out after 1979, but... I remember watching Urban Cowboy for the very first time on the ABC Sunday Night Movie. Yeah, there's so many movies that that's where I remember watching it. Right. I, and I and I can't tell if it was ABC or not, but I remember watching uh, the James Bond movies, okay. and I, that was on television. Right, it, it probably was ABC. It, we you would see uh, Disney, mm-hmm. and th- it was where for the most part you would get exposed to these things. Right. So, okay, so that's Sunday Night Movie. Next up on the list, we have the one and only appearance by a, a, a show from NBC. And that would be the massive show, Little House on the Prairie, coming in number 14. Ran from 1974 to 1983. And keep in mind that Michael Landon, who was the creator of Little House on the Prairie, came off of Bonanza, which was, before that, one of the biggest mm-hmm. shows of all time. So Michael Landon was a, was a pretty big deal up to this point. He had had a career that spanned almost 20 years in the business, which was kind of unheard of at that time. And he was he wrote episodes, he directed episodes, he starred in the episodes. And Michael Landon doesn't really get talked about much now, uh, you know, in terms of what he did as, you know, that he was pretty prolific if you look at all the things that he did to contribute to the making of a show. And besides that, Little House on a Prairie, that again was a show that appealed to all ages in a family. So that was something that we sat down and watched with our parents, with our sister, and we gathered around and we watched Little House on the Prairie because they had they had young kids mm-hmm. that, that the kids could relate to, that there were storylines for the parents. And I'll credit him for as a as a story writer, he had a he had a very good ear for kind of keeping things current but yet it was set in the 19th century and 
I, I find it hard to believe that there's, you know, a lot of people out there that aren't familiar with the Little House on the Prairie, but I'm sure there are. So, you know, the, the premises is based off the Little House on the Prairie books by Laura Ingalls Wilder. And it is the story of a family that, that is kind of surviving out there in the, uh, the great frontier. Uh, and it, it's, it's based, so the characters are kind of based on, on what Laura Ingalls Wilder wrote. And then, as you say, like Michael Landon had, uh, had a big part in, in writing scripts. And so they would take some of the characters, you know, who can forget Nellie Olson? I mean, right. what, 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 what a great character that was there. And even her mother, Harriet, you know, I, I despise that Harriet Olson <laughs> and that Nellie Olson. And it, it, but you're right. It was a show that everyone could watch in the family. You know, what's interesting about this show is, so it, what did I say? It came out in 1974. Mm-hmm. And it goes up to 1983. And I can almost tell you exactly, based on watching an episode, when I stopped watching. Because okay. I, you know, being three years older than what you are, I probably watched pretty consistently up until my teen years. Okay. And so I, you know, I became a teenager in 81. So in 81, I, I probably didn't watch uh, anything beyond that. I've seen those episodes since then in reruns. Uh, but... It was definitely prior to my teen years, uh, uh, you know, a time where we sat down and did watch it. And a, a word that I typically throw out quite a bit is durability. And turns out Little House on the Prairie has some durability because it has now come back into regular TV rotation that the Hallmark Channel now runs Little House every night mm-hmm. on, on TV. And I still get sucked into some of those episodes because it does take you back and they are well done episodes. It is good for us as a, as a, for our family, it was good television. Right. So Little House of Number 14. At uh, number 13, a CBS show, Alice. Alice was a show, I watched some when mm-hmm. it was on, and uh, to give it the years of that. For, so Alice was on from 1976 to 1985. I think people forget how popular the show was if it had that long of a run. You mm-hmm. know, with the, of course, you had the main character, Alice, another single mother. Uh, you know, she is working at a diner owned by Mel. So she's at Mel's diner. Mel Sharples. And the, uh, the, her famous coworker, she's got Vera, who is this kind of nervous, shy person. And then, of course, then there's that sassy Flo. And Flo was kind of a cultural icon when, when the show first hit. She, people identify with Flo because she was that sassy mm-hmm. waitress that seemed to be at every sort of small town restaurant or diner and you know she always had had this you know this cavalcade of guys that always came in and what i always thought was was funny is flo was was a little bit older at the time she's probably in her 40s and all these guys that came in they were of all walks of life all different looks some guys were skinny some guys were heavy but they all love flo but but if you got on flo's bad side what did she used to say? Kiss my grit. That's right. That was that was a, n- a national phenomenon. The kiss my grits phrase. I believe I used kiss my grits about two weeks ago <laughs> when I was referring to something with one of my kids. Did and they, they have any idea what you're they talking knew, about? They knew what I was talking about. Right. So uh, you know, Alice. It was a good show. I mean, it, it's it's something that I did watch back then. Um, I probably saw. More in syndication, but it is a show that I would occasionally watch. Before you jump into the other the other show, what always what always reminds me of Alice is one of the greatest Gen X movies of all time, which is uh, in 1993, Dumb and Dumber mm-hmm. with Jim Carrey, 
where they go to the one restaurant and the waitress comes up and he goes, excuse me, Flo? <laughs> Who could ever forget that? Anyway. No, absolutely not. So, uh, Alice at 13, number 12, yet another Aaron Spelling television show. The very popular, the very famous Charlie's Angels, which ran from 1976 to 1981. Yeah, kind of a shooting star there because it was the first couple of seasons with Farrah Fawcett. Huge. Huge. Uh, absolutely huge show. It was, again, Aaron Spelling had this ability to kind of create, like Sean said before, this this kind of this visual, this, this cultural uh, icon. I mean, the storyline is pretty out there. You have this millionaire guy who nobody ever sees. Right. Hires these three beautiful women to go out there and solve crimes. Mm -hmm. And with the help, you know, of, uh, you know, Bosley. Bosley. Yep. And then they would go out and they would solve these crimes. A little far-fetched. Let's face it. I, mean, I don't think for us, the uh, Lancaster County Police Department would ever hire, you know, have, have a millionaire do this little thing on his side and, and arrest any criminals. But, you know, for TV, it, it had... It had some sass to it. Yeah, obviously for older Gen Xers, the the, the women were easy on the eyes. Yeah, and it was uh, it, it was uh, it was a fun show, and it turned into they ended up making a movie of it later on with with Drew Barrymore and Cameron Diaz, and it turned out to be a, a huge hit. Turns out there were a lot of Charlie's Angels fans out there. So the the show was heavy on the cheese factor, no doubt about it. You know the it it wasn't. Uh, they weren't tackling a whole lot of deep subject matter, but that was intentional. Right. It was supposed to be fun. I mean, that, that was the idea. And even back then, the, uh, you know, the producers, uh, the creators, uh, they caught a lot of flack because of the way they were portraying the women in the show. But uh, I, you know, I saw an interview uh, with Aaron Spelling, and, and he said that at the time, this was kind of groundbreaking in that they actually had the 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 women as the only women solving the crimes. They said, because even if you looked at the, uh, uh, some of the other shows where you might've had women on the show as detectives, they always had a man come in and kind of save the day. Right. And they said that it, it intentionally, they, they did not want to have someone come in and save the day. Cause originally, I guess the script was written where there was a male character that would kind of come in and do that. And they said, no, let's, we want to make this different. And yes, so was it, you know, uh, some NYPD Blue, which later on became, you know, you know, kind of a serious type of, uh, you know, crime show? No, it wasn't. But, you know, it, it was super popular. The, the storylines were, and I remember watching an interview with Aaron Spelling, and he said he was trying to create television to take people away from everyday life. Sure. And I think, you know, we are talking about The Love Boat, you're talking about Charlie's Angels. It was definitely escapism television where people could just kind of get lost in the moment and enjoy something that was not, you know, considered normal life on a TV show. And that's not all wrong. No, not at it, all. It's it, there. There's a time and place for for dealing with uh, difficult issues. You know, we talked a couple times about Norman Lear. He was big into that. He would take the sitcom, and he would bring in a lot of socially relevant issues. There was a lot of racial issues that he would talk about. Uh, when he, when Maud, you know, there would be some feminist types of issues that he would deal with. So he was always pushing it in that direction. All in the family, we'll talk about that. You know, another Norman Lear show, kind of hitting some controversial things with a touch of humor. But that's not what Aaron Spelling was all about. And there's there's something to be said about just being able to enjoy yourself for a half hour or an hour. Right. So 
Charlie's Angels, as I said, number 12 on the list. Number 11 was a show that I think some people forget, an ABC show, uh, Eight is Enough, ran from 1977 to 1981. For that that short run that it had, this was a very, very popular show. It sure was. And again, it was it was a show that had eight children to a, to a widowed father. Although and, when the show started, he wasn't widowed. Right. Yes. And, and then, that's only because the actress that they hired to play the mother actually passed away. Right. Yeah. So as the storyline go, they have these they have these eight kids. They're from much older to much younger. And it was kind of the the storyline of their life. Like each each different episode may focus on one of the kids or on on the dad who was portrayed by Dick Van Patten, also known in uh, Spaceballs as the king. But it was at times it was a serious show, but it, it was one of those, I guess you would call it a, uh, you know, occasional slapstick kind of, there was humor in it, but it was primarily, um, you know, just a, a regular, I guess you could call it a drama. And part sure. of the reason why the show had a popular, but somewhat short run was because it was based upon the kids. Right. And the, you know, you know there was a couple of breakout stars from the show. Willie Ames, became an instant star on the show. He was the uh, kind of the teenage heartthrob that, mm -hmm. you know, that he was, you know, the guy on Tiger Beat and whatever other publications would be out like that. So he hit that demographic, but the biggest star by far was Nicholas, Adam Rich. Yeah. And I don't know if people even remember Adam Rich. It's, it's interesting because as I was prepping, I Googled Adam Rich. Adam Rich didn't come up right away. You know, it, it took me a little bit of searching to get to, to this Adam Rich. And he, with that, that, you know, Nicholas character, who was roughly, I think he's my age. Right. And he was this, you know, cute little guy with his kind of bowl haircut. And every mother wanted him as their child. And every, you know, brother or sister wanted him as their brother or sister. And it was a show that as these characters aged, you know... It, it, it kind of ended the show because right. Nicholas didn't stay cute forever. Right. And Willie Ames didn't stay a teenager forever. And that's the struggle of a lot of, of a lot of shows and go back a little bit further to the Brady bunch. They struggle for stories. Once the kids started to get older, it wasn't, it wasn't the cute kind of comedy like you, like you were saying. Right. So that was eight is enough. And you know, it's a show I watched on occasion. I can't mm -hmm. say that, that it was a something I watch on a regular basis. And sometimes with syndication, it's hard to remember if I watched the shows at the time. I mean, I knew who they were, but I, outside of uh, Willie Ames and, and uh, Adam Rich, I probably really couldn't have named anyone. Although, mm -hmm. you know, interesting little side note is that Mark Hamill was originally supposed to be on the show. And then he went off and he made Star Wars mm -hmm. and became so popular that he actually went out of his contract and they didn't want to let him out. But then he had that horrific car accident that he was in and then he had, you know, a lot of damage to his face. And right. as a result, then they let him out of the contract. So, kind of interesting with that. Right. So, uh, eight, 8 is enough at 11. Number 10, a show, um, for another show on ABC was Taxi. That ran from uh, 1978 to 1983. And, you know, once again, this was a show that, for me, at 10 years old, I, I, I didn't watch, didn't really get. Right. But you could, you could look at the cast of that show, and that may have been one of the most successful casts to go on to other things. And this was the start, really, for a lot of them because uh, you had Tony Danza, mm -hmm. you had um, Danny DeVito. Um, it, it just had, it, 
again, probably a little bit. It, it came on later at night, so we didn't really get a chance to watch it as kids at this particular time. And again, and it was a show that won. It was a critic's favorite. It won lots of Emmys. It won lots of awards. And I watched it when it went into, uh, you know, Jim Ignatowski mm-hmm. was one of my favorite characters because he was always tripping on something. And as a kid, I didn't know what that was. I didn't know what his problem was. I thought he was just eccentric, you know? <laughs> right. <laughs> Same with Laka. Yes. Uh, you know, Andy Kaufman. The, the, I remember being kind of stunned when I saw Andy Kaufman's stand-up act. You know, for those of you who may not know, you know on the show Taxi, he was the mechanic. And right. do you, did they ever see what country he was from? I mean, it was like an Eastern Bloc yes. kind of country that he came over, yeah. Laka. And, you know, he's the thank you very much. You know, that was yep. always kind of his little line that he'd always say. And, oh, he's this, you know, kind of funny, uh, mild manner mechanic. And then he's this outrageous comedian when I actually saw him, you know, in the 80s when, you know, he would appear on, uh, like with David Letterman. Right. And, uh, uh, that you know, once again, another breakout star because Andy Kaufman was super popular at the time. And this was the first time I watched Jeff Conaway, who right. was one of the characters, Bobby, on the show, and he was Kanicki on in the movie Grease. Mm-hmm. And I hadn't seen Grease at that point, right? And so he was actually one of the ba- bigger stars to be drawn into this show because of his of his portrayal in in Greece that was that was prior. So now here's we'll go back to what we talked about with the ABC movie. That's where I saw Grease for yep. the first time. Yeah. And I, I remember seeing his character. I'm like, I'm like, oh, okay. I, I finally made the connection. Yeah. And, and I think we watched it. I think that's the first. We watched Grease yeah. as a family. Right. And I'm like, oh, it, it was like, oh, well, I mean, I knew John Travolta, you know, right. from Welcome Back to Co- Welcome Back Cotter. Right. But I had, I had no idea that this, this was the guy. And I think at that point, it, it did make me aware of Taxi. Uh, it, and it, I also, you know, another name throughout there, Mary Lou Henner, yeah. you know, another big name to come off the show. So. Uh, and we didn't even talk about Judd Hirsch. It was like the, the star of yeah, the show. Yeah, he was the star of the <laughs> <Yeah>. show. <laughs> well, I mean, we're talking, we're looking at it at eight and 11-year-old eyes here. So. Right. But, you know, and, and then I would see him later on play like fathers and grandfathers. Right. And so, you know, you know great actor, good good cast. Uh, I, I think it's a show maybe I should go back and visit again sometime. Uh, maybe it'll change. Yeah. Uh, number nine, a show in its final run, All in the Family, one of the biggest shows in the history of television, Archie Bunker. Who, who can forget the Archie Bunker character, ran from January 1971 to April 1979. And then um, into syndication. And All in the Family is a show that would never be allowed to be put on TV today based on some of the humor that was thrown right. out there. But I think that was the brilliance of Norman Lear. And he he's Norman Lear's still going today. I think he's like 97 years old. It's mm-hmm. incredible. And he commented on on the humor that was used to raise points and the fact that Carol O'Connor, who played Archie Bunker, you know, the, the way that the jokes were written, everybody knew that he was a bigot. Everybody right. knew that he was, you know, a, a feminist pig, he, that he was, but he did it in a way that was kind of, I hate his disarming. You know, he had, a, he had a, he had a charm about him yeah. that only few actors would have been able to pull off. And, and Norman Lear had said that when Carol O'Connor adopted Archie Bunker, because originally when he read the script, he hated Archie sure. Bunker. Yeah. But then once he kind of got into what, who Archie Bunker was, that uh, then he was able to kind of put his, his stamp onto that character. And it really is, it's always considered one of the greatest TV shows ever made. So even though we were really young when the show was on the air, I remember seeing it when it was on the air. Yes. And I thought Archie was funny. 
I love the fact he would call uh, his son-in-law Mike Meathead. That that always cracked me up. Uh, Edith, his wife, you know, the way she would always come running whenever the door opened up and Archie sat in the chair, and she'd come running out with his beer, and uh, you know, it's sitting while well, he was sitting in his chair, and I, you know, it was really good, really good cast, and uh, you know, the the writing would still holds up today. Yeah. Yeah, and it's it's spawned you know some some spinoff shows, most notably the Jeffersons, right? Because the the Jeffersons played their neighbors, and then they ended up getting their own spinoff where they they moved up where they got rich and you know, businesses became successful, right? And the Jefferson had Jeffersons had a nice long run of their own. Yeah, absolutely. And speaking of spinoffs, so that's going to lead us right into number eight, a spinoff that. Keep in mind, folks, this is the number eight rated show in the country that is considered one of the biggest busts of a spinoff ever, and that would be The Ropers. The Ropers with Norman Fell. Now, The Ropers, when they were on Three's Company, and I actually had a conversation with somebody about this a few weeks ago. Who did I think was better as the landlord, Mr. Furley or Mr. Roper? Mr. Roper. And Mr. Roper was Norman Fell, not... You would not think of Norman Fell as a good comedy actor, but his timing was, so, and the way he would tell a joke and then look at the camera. Oh, that was my favorite Look part. directly at the camera and smile. Yeah. Was, was spot on. I mean, I, it, it's what kind of drew me into the show as a kid, like getting into watching the reruns. Yeah. As I got older, uh, Don Knotts, who played Mr. Furley, I, I can appreciate him more now than what I did back then. So this, this is something where I, I'm always like this. So if I like an original character, it's very difficult for me to embrace when someone new comes in. Mm-hmm. You know, I was that way with Cheers when uh, uh, Shelley Long left and uh, Kirstie Alley came in. Yeah. I, I, it took me a while. I mean, I, I didn't like the new dynamic, the new chemistry. Eventually, I, I, I came to it, it, it. They won me over, but. I would say the same thing with, with this, where I really liked the Mr. Roper character, and I liked the way he was always going back and forth with Mrs. Roper. You know, they. So you know the the premise of this. You know, we'll, we'll get into the Three's Company later because mm-hmm. it is on the list. But you know, the Ropers, they were the landlords on Three's Company, and they were so popular. So they approached Norman Fell about you know this spinoff show, and he did not want to do the spinoff because he understood there's a very low success rate for these spinoffs and he's on a hit show with three's company. He goes, you know, this is, this is the vehicle that he wants to stay on. And they said, well, Norman, I tell you what, if, if the show gets canceled and this can get picked up after one season, we'll, we'll let you come back on the show again. So the Ropers right out of the, out of the gate, they're successful. Like I said, they're the number eight rated show over this time. And they, were there for a year they renewed them they they went and they moved the time slot and they put them on saturday night now scott you had mentioned that saturday night worked out well for the love boat mm-hmm. it did not work out well for most other shows no so they you know that was like that was the death spot for a lot of shows and that's what happened to the ropers so all right they got canceled after one and a half seasons uh norman fell said okay i want to go back onto uh, three's company Mr. Furley, uh, Don Knotts had already established he's the new the new landlord. And the premise of the show, The Ropers, was that they sold the apartment building, yeah, right? And then now all of a sudden they have this they have money, right? So now they have, they're they're well to do. So they go to and they buy this condo mm-hmm. in an, in another community, and the condo was actually sold to them by their neighbor, and it was it was not. Let's just say, you know, when you go back. 
the script's not necessarily I think they were playing off of the popularity of another show, and I think that's why it struggled. And I also heard uh, some commentators say that it was they didn't have enough of a of a draw from the you know the age dynamic that they wanted to go for. So when they were on Three's Company, I mean, you had a much younger crowd that was watching the show, and then you would have this comic relief come in from this older couple, right? And say there's their slapstick lines and then they'd walk out it's pretty difficult to be able to have that as the core that you're going for so the ropers were you know probably our age now when they were on the show you know mid to late 50s and that wasn't necessarily the prime audience that uh they were looking for at the time right okay. so anyway so eventually the ropers get canceled but at least on this list they did come in at number eight number seven one of the all-time most popular shows in the history of television, and that would be a CBS show, MASH, which ran from 1972 to 1983. MASH, again, not our demographic as kids. No. The the jokes, MASH was a, a very popular movie that was made in the early 70s. And the running joke with the TV show is that the Korean War lasted you know, less than five years, but the TV show MASH lasted more than 10, so... Um, right, and you, and as you just mentioned it, I mean that's the idea of the show. It's a it, you know we have these this mobile army surgical hospital, I think is what it stands right. for, mm-hmm. and so we have these surgeons. You know we have Hawkeye, Alan Alda, Alda's character, and you know they're kind of dealing with the stress of war. So you have the the, the serious nature of war with these wisecracking doctors and these these kind of crazy characters that they have. You know, who can forget Klinger? Mm-hmm. Klinger's always trying to get out of the military, so he's dressing in drag. You, you know, you have Radar, who's, you know, always walking around with his clipboard, and, you know, he's basically the guy kind of running the show, but you have these, you know, other guys in charge. But with the serious subject matter of the Korean War, when I was 10 years old, I can't say that the Korean War was something I knew much about or really was that interested in. You know, this was definitely humor I didn't necessarily get. You know, occasionally it might be funny when they were, you know, you would they would bring you know Loretta Switz character in there, mm-hmm. Hot Lips Houlihan, and, right. and Frank Burns. Frank Burns. You know, they, yeah. It was interesting. You know, it was it was so popular. You know, like many shows, they had a spinoff. You know, mm-hmm. McLean Stevenson goes for Hello Larry, right? Which you know another show where he probably would have liked to have gone back to Mash, but they killed him off. Yeah, and and McLean Stevenson's character goes away. Harry Morgan's character comes in. Colonel Potter. Sherman T. Potter take over the yeah. uh, take over the mash unit, and then um, Charles Winchester the mm-hmm. third comes in to so credit the show for being able to survive actors coming and going because not a lot of shows can do that. You replace characters, especially main characters, it could be difficult for a show to continue its run. But by the end of its run, Mash the last episode of Mash was widely known at its time as the most viewed episode in the history of television so right there were a lot of mash fans out there not not for us but we recognized that this was one recognizes one of the better shows ever made in tv it is and, and I, you know a friend of mine you know she was in the military and made made the comment this is her all-time favorite show mm-hmm. you know and she's a gen xer just like we are right so it you know it's it's kind of what you're into she didn't watch probably at the time right you know it would be more when it was uh, in reruns with syndication but, you know, once again, kind of like Taxi, you know, some of the other shows on the list, you know, well-written. I'm, I'm certainly not going to put down MASH, but when I was 10, 11, 12 years old, not watching MASH. So 
That was number seven. Number six, the only show that's still on the list, that's still going strong today, and that would be 60 Minutes, a CBS show, debuted in September 1968 and still, you know, one of the big shows. Yeah, well-written. Oh, they, they cover good stories. They cover controversial stories. They, they hit hard. Now, obviously, all of the reporters that were on back then They've been replaced, and they've gone through many, many changes in terms of who covers the stories. But there's been a lot. Uh, you know, I remember seeing Andy Rooney for the very first time on on 60 Minutes at, at around. At, I I just thought he was kind of funny the way he spoke. I really didn't pay attention to what he said, but he kind of had that sing-songy way of talking. And I just that's what stood out to me as a kid. Right. Yeah. Any any show that has that much longevity is pretty impressive. So you know. You know, hats off to Mash. And and I thought uh, Mike Wallace was one of those kind of like those old mean guys that would yell at me if I slipped on his grass or something. Okay, but he, right. he also had some. Uh, he's also known for doing some very famous interviews. Yeah. So that's now we get into the top five, the top five, all ABC shows, and you're going to see your your you know other than one show is dominated by Gary Marshall. You know, Gary Marshall is. Um, you know, regarded as one of the the greatest uh, you know creators of television, and this is this is his era right here. So, number five, a Gary Marshall show, but a show I bet many of you do not remember, and that is a show called Angie. What, what are your memories of Angie? What I remember about Angie is that it was set in Philadelphia, yep. which yep. is what drew us to it. Absolutely. And she's a waitress in a diner. She meets a guy who comes in to order food. Turns out he is a multi-billionaire, and I remember them saying that he was either owner or part owner of the Philadelphia Eagles. We're like, hey, Philadelphia Eagles! But then they they end up getting into a relationship and they get married eventually, yeah, right? Yeah. And for the very the very first season is kind of that back and forth. The mom, Angie's mom, in the show is portrayed by somebody who goes on very famously later into Everybody Loves Raymond to playing the uh, the mom in that in that uh, in that show. Sure, Doris Roberts. Yeah, so I mean, she had a really really long and successful career. This was again a shooting star type show because, much like one of our favorite shows, you know, around this time, but not in this list, is Bosom Buddies with Tom Hanks. That was his vehicle into stardom. Huge first season and struggled in the second season, but this was this was the big season for them. It was so. Angie was a show that uh, starred Donna Pascal, and if that name rings a bell with some people, she had a major part in Saturday Night Fever. She was Annette. Yep. And I remember when I saw Saturday Night Fever, which was. Years after I saw Angie. Probably on the ABC. <laughs> it was on the ABC. Yeah, Sunday Night Movie. movie. Yep. Yeah. And I was like, that's Angie. For, you know, so. I think I, I think I thought the same thing. Yeah. I was like, hey, that's Angie. Yeah, exactly. And maybe you and I were the only two people <laughs> watching who, who, who had the timeline reversed. But that being said, it was a show that we watched. Yes. And, you know, I, I heard Donna Pascal interviewed about this. And. There really was no good reason why it got canceled. It's just that for some reason it fell out of favor with the network and they just didn't get behind it and they just kind of dropped it. And keep in mind that ABC right at that point in primetime was firing on all cylinders. They dominated, like you had said, 13 out of the 20 shows in the top 20 were from ABC. They they probably thought they were the kings of the world at this point and they could, right. they could bring anything out. 
I mean, the Ropers were in the top 10 right. for crying out loud. Yeah. So they probably thought that they everything they touched turned to gold. And that's, that may have been a reason why that show kind of got swept under the carpet. Could be. But, all right, so that's the, that's your, you know, that's number five. But now that we get into four, three, two, and one, we're going to see some of the all-time heavy hitters in the history of television. Number four, arguably the biggest show in the 70s, Happy Days, mm. another Gary Marshall show. This was a cultural phenomenon. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the funny thing is the show got off to a slow start. It almost didn't make it out of its second season because when it started, it was based off of a, a TV show in the, in the mid seventies called uh, love American style. Well, it was, it, it, it appeared on it. Right. So there was a segment from Gary Marshall when he was kind of trying to, to, to sell the show that, that made that. Right. So Ron Howard, who played Ronnie Howard on the Andy Griffith show, is now of, and he was in American Graffiti. So you take some of the, and, and Gary Marshall was experimenting with this nostalgic look at America, where a lot of baby boomers at the time were looking back because now they're having kids, which are us, the Gen Xers, and they, he was going back to a you know kind of a simpler time, and you're talking late fifties, early sixties, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and then you, it's centered around this family, the Cunninghams. And then their friends, you know, Patsy Weber, Ralph Mouth, mm -hmm. and of course, Arthur Fonzarelli. And, um, but Gary Marshall really was, I think, the king of nostalgia when he was able to create these, these feel-good family episodes. And this was a show that we watched as a family on television. And that was 100% what uh, Gary Marshall intended. He, he said in an interview that I watched that he was trying to create nostalgia. And he wanted the entire family to sit down and watch it. So we have talked about many different shows on here that Scott and I just couldn't watch because we were too young. Yeah. It, they may have been great shows, but in no way were they going to keep our attention, uh, even though we didn't have video games back then and we didn't have, we didn't have screens and we didn't have phones that, that we could look at. Even though that was all that was on, I wasn't necessarily going to be interested in a lot of these shows, but... If you could create something that the entire family not only could sit and watch, but wanted to sit and watch, you had complete gold. And that, that was what Happy Days was. And when I said about how, that, the, um, that the show almost didn't make it out of the first couple of seasons, the first couple of seasons, they, they, made, they changed the format. Gary Marshall changed the format where it went from being uh, a scripted, no audience, to they started filming before a live television mm -hmm. audience. And then they went to a little bit more of a performance-based, sort of a slapstick-type comedy. And it paid off because the show went from obscurity to being number one. And at this point, it's still in the top five after being in the top five, close to number one for probably three or four seasons at that point. Yeah. And it's you want to talk about merchandise. I mentioned earlier about a Dukes of Hazard lunchbox. You were going to see plenty of things uh, that had uh, you know the Fonz on. My Fonzie T-shirt. Yeah. And, you know, it was what Fonzie says, hey. Hey, yeah. that's right. That's, yeah. So it, this was something that uh, little kids loved and grandmas loved and everybody in between. So, it, you know, it, it still holds true. I can still watch episodes of Happy Days and it still cracks me up. Yeah. Gary Marshall shows had a real sweetness about it in terms of the, the, the dynamic and the, the nuclear family as far as them staying together and, and working through things as a family. Right. So Happy Days, great show. All-time great. Uh, that was number four. Number three, yet another Gary Marshall show, a spinoff, kind of, of Happy Days, and that would be Mork and Mindy. 
Mork and Mindy starring Robin Williams. Really the first time that a lot of people have got to see Robin Williams. He was a, he was a stage comedian. He was a, a performer. He, he at times played a mime in Central Park. They, but the guy is just this boundless source of energy, and I think Gary Marshall sort of harnessed that energy and turned it into this alien character, Mork, from Orc, and then putting him down into Denver, Colorado. Or Boulder. Or Boulder, I'm sorry. Right. Yeah, Boulder, Colorado. And they had, uh, you know, he, he ends up moving in with somebody that he met, and they're trying to keep people from finding out that he's an alien, but uh, just just a funny, funny show based on a brilliant stand-up comedian. So, uh, and, and I, I forgot to mention that that it ran from September 1978 to uh, May in 1982. So it had a nice run. And you're right, it was where the world is really introduced to Robin Williams. Now, I mentioned that it was a spinoff of Happy Days, sort of. And that's because there was a, a standalone episode of Happy Days where Richie has a dream mm-hmm. and he dreams about an alien and that alien is Mork. Yep. And, the whole, and the sole reason that even came about was because uh, Gary Marshall said his seven-year-old son said he lost interest in Happy Days. And he goes, well, where are you interested? And he goes, oh, well, you know, space and, and aliens. And, and he's like, well, we can't have that on Happy Days. And he said, well, have Richie have a dream. Keep in mind, the seven-year-old son is now calling the shots for ABC, <laughs> which is kind of interesting. And Gary Marshall says, okay, let's do it. So they do it. They have this episode. And Gary Marshall said that he knew Robin Williams was brilliant. He goes, he goes, it's not hard to tell. He goes, when we were done shooting the episode, as you said, filmed before a live studio audience, he said, the audience gave him standing ovation. They, yeah. they just went crazy. So he remembered that. And it's in the back of his mind. He said, you know, a couple of years later, ABC comes to him and say, hey, we have nothing. What do you got for us? And he goes, I don't have anything in the pitch room. He goes, but I remember this episode of, working, and of, of Robin Williams and Mork. And he says, oh, I have this, this Mork from Mork. And literally that episode, which was a Happy Days episode, was his pitch. And the executive said, great, go ahead. Go ahead, go out and try to make it. So... The catchphrase from Mork and Mindy. Do you remember what that was? What, Shazbot? That was one of them. Nanu, Nanu? Nanu, Nanu. Yeah. Just like Happy Days had its nice run of uh, catchphrases. Of course, you know, we talked about Fonzie with his A, but uh, come on. Sit on it, mouth. Or sit on a potsy. Um, it, it, that's, I, I still like using that one. And sit on it. But, you know, it, and even fashion. So I remember Robin Williams was known for his his wacky rainbow colored suspenders, mm-hmm. and I remember some kids at school actually they sold them. Yeah, we showed up with those rainbow suspenders. Yeah, I remember seeing them in the in the store for sale, and it had like the little the uh, buttons on them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So that um, that was uh, Mork and Mindy uh, came in at number three. Now number two, we're gonna we're gonna drop the uh, the Gary Marshall uh, shows for just a little bit, and so number two was ABC. With yet again another monster show, Three's Company, which ran from 1977 to 1984. And that was based around John Ritter's character, Jack Tripper. And it really was his vehicle for the show because him and Joyce DeWitt were were the two uh, steadfast members of the cast. But there was quite a bit of changeover over the years. It started out with Suzanne Somers, who at this point is on the show. You know, she had a very public leaving of the or walk off of the show because she wanted to be paid more money. But as far as the show itself at this point, now the Ropers have left. So mm-hmm. now Mr. Furley comes in and but yet still the show continues to go strong. 
this is part of that Tuesday night ABC lineup that just dominated the whole season. And, you know, we've mentioned a lot about, you know, creators of, of shows. You know, we have our Norman Lears, we have our Gary Marshall, Aaron Spelling. Well, here's a show that was based upon a British show, and it was called Man About the House. And it was kind of like The Office was taken from a British show as well and adapted to American television. And that's what they did with Three's Company. It literally was exactly the same. And it was amazing how this show took off. And I think probably the main reason it took off was because John Ritter was a comedic genius. Yes. And he was, even though this is a show when it came out because we were young, we did not get a lot of the jokes. You know, a lot of the jokes were, you know, uh, about, you know, dating and you know hitting on you know the opposite sex and we we didn't get it you mm-hmm. know or, you know and because the, the John Ritter characters is playing you know he's he, the idea is he moves in with these two girls he's going to be the roommate is platonic but because Mr. Fur or uh, Mr. Roper. Mr. Roper's old yeah. fashioned he doesn't want a guy living with two girls so Jack plays gay mm-hmm. and you know once again I didn't necessarily get all of that when I, when I was young but you know what I did get I got Larry <laughs> Larry, the, uh, the the crazy neighbor who is always trying to pick up women down at the Regal Beagle. And what was his job? Uh, he was a pilot, wasn't he? No, he's a used car salesman. Was it Larry? Okay. Larry. Larry was a used car salesman and looked every bit the part. <laughs> hey, uh, the, the, and I think the Regal Beagle was the only name or the only uh, venue or, or part of the show from the original British show that carried over into three the, the name was the regal oh, okay Beagle. yeah, yeah I that. so i that it, it kind of tied it together but yeah you, you said jack uh john ritter was was a comedic genius and he really was there were many people that were before him that had long-running tv shows lucille ball was one I remember dick van dyke saying he's the next generation of the great physical actor and that's what it was so if you are 10 years old seven years old you know, like you and I were at the time, I might not have gotten some of the dialogue, but when Jack would trip and fall down, that I got that. Yeah. yeah. You know, so, uh, you know, one of the all-time shows, a show that we definitely watched on a consistent and regular basis. So that's number two. So the number one show on our list, yet another spinoff of Happy Days. Mm-hmm. And another Gary Marshall show, and that would be Laverne and Shirley, which ran from 1976 to 1983. So at this time, Milwaukee, Wisconsin rules television because, you know, two of the top shows were based in Milwaukee with Laverne and Shirley and Happy Days. Laverne and Shirley, uh, you know, Penny Marshall uh, started her career off. She she was kind of a sort of a character actor, and so she's the, she's the sister of Gary Marshall, mm-hmm. and she's able – Again, with with Laverne and Shirley, the the ensemble troupe is really what brings the show together. It started out as they played uh, two dates that on on Happy Days, mm-hmm. and so they based on so the success Fonzie, of that show, Fonzie yeah. and Richie, yep. you know, because Fonzie has a date with Laverne and he sets Richie up with uh, Shirley, right? Played happened, by Cindy Williams, Cindy Williams, who happened to be Ron Howard's love interest in American Graffiti. Yep. It was kind of interesting. So then they get their own show, and of course they bring in this new new realm, uh, this new uh, troop of characters to Laverne and Shirley. And of course, you know, there's there's Carmine, there's, the big ragu, there's Lenny and Squiggy, and and of course, uh, you know, Laverne's dad who owns Frank the, DeFazio owns the bowling alley, mm-hmm. and it's just there's so much. It was such a well written show. It's hard for a spinoff to go to go out and kind of make its own identity, especially when it's supposedly based in the same city as 
arguably the network's biggest show. But Laverne and Shirley somehow managed to pull that off. And for about five seasons, they were the, they, you know, Happy Days was at 8 o'clock. Laverne and Shirley was 8.30. Three's Company was at 9 o'clock. I don't think you could have asked for a better three shows. And at this point, Laverne and Shirley overtaken Happy Days as a bigger, bigger show of the two. And if you were to come up with a list of not just the top shows from 1978-79, but just the top shows of the 70s, I, I think most people, well, a lot of people are going to come up with a list that's going to have Laverne and Shirley and Happy Days on the list. So the fact that you have two equally humongous shows that, uh, you know, had, had longevity, they, but not only did they have longevity, but in the, the moment when they, they were at their best, mm-hmm. I, it, I don't know that I've ever laugh, laughed harder than what I have at Simoleni and Squiggy's lines. Yeah. And just... Penny Marshall herself, this was kind of her one and done acting gig. Even mm-hmm. though she stayed with she stayed with the show throughout to the very end, then she got into behind the camera and started directing. Became one of Generation X's best directors, absolutely. Yeah, by by the end of the, the 1990s, she had uh, you know, huge movies that she that she you know she directed big. She directed A League of Their Own. She was a big deal. Uh, is she? You know, not only did she somehow manage to tie in some of these people that she worked with on Laverne and Shirley, if you look at a league of their own, one of the PA announcers on the baseball league is Squiggy. Right. And Michael McKeon, who, you know, was funny as the, the lone wolf, uh, <laughs> Lenny, go back and watch the episode, yeah, but he ends up having a very respectable acting career and a show that's on today that just ended. That was considered one of the better shows of all time. Better call Saul. He had a very prominent role in that show and has had a long, long distinguished career. As as a huge fan of Better Call Saul and Breaking Bad, I mean, the the he plays on Better Call Saul. You know, he plays Jimmy McGill's uh, brother, Chuck McGill. You know, Jimmy becomes Saul. Don't want to break it for anybody out there, but uh, the the way he, you know, this is a serious role, and he it, he he goes from the early days of Michael McKeon of playing the the squiggy character. Uh, which is just a lunatic mm-hmm. to this very serious role. It's amazing to see the the arc of, of his career. You know, he, he leaves uh, Laverne and Shirley. He goes off and he's in Spinal Tap. He's, you know, he's you know, a movie that I really like. Uh, you know, w- w- we're going to get into some more music down the road. And, and I'm, I was always still am kind of a big fan of that genre of music, the the hard rock that they were spoofing at the time. He goes on, he does uh, Best in Show, A Mighty Win. Some of the you know, cult classics, and it, you know, just a great serious actor. In, in addition to these um, these comedic roles, but he could not have been funnier yeah. as as the as the moron yeah. that he was playing. And because I, I heard them, uh, you know, what they they interviewed, uh, you know, Lenny and Squiggy, the guys, um, you know, uh, David Lauder and uh, Michael McKeon, you know, who played the the, the part, and they said. You know, usually you'll have uh, a dumb guy who thinks he's smart, mm-hmm. and then you have a smart guy who thinks he's dumb, so he kind of finds the other guy. And, I mean, that's kind of, you know, Squeaky was the was the dumb guy who thought he was smart, and Lenny was the dumb guy who thought Squeaky was smart. <laughs> <laughs> so that was kind of the premise of it. And, you know, it it, it is a vehicle for, for Laverne and Shirley, without a doubt. I mean, right. they're the main characters. Right. But in many ways, it was a show that had four main characters. Oh yeah, it was it was definitely an ensemble show because 
Laverne and Shirley were rarely in in I guess you would call them uh, you know skits or or portions of the show where it's just the two of them. There's right. usually somebody else involved. It's them reacting or playing off of one of these outrageous characters that they, they lived in the basement of an apartment building and they was always encounter, they worked at Shots Brewery. Shots Brewery, they're bottle cappers. And so they're not exactly, you know, it's not an Aaron Spelling production where they're, right. where they're multi-billionaires, you know, they're, they're just barely making ends meet. But Yeah. Yeah. They're not living the glamorous life, but that just goes to show you with how on this list that you can have a different formula. Mm-hmm. And many times, you know, they're reusing the formula in, in different ways, you know, put a little twist on it. But that formula that, that you come up with, the Gary Marshall, kind of the, the, the slapstick, you know, working class um, kind of comedies that he put out, everybody is as popular as they are in spelling uh, slickly polished uh, productions. Yeah, when you, when you look at like the evolution of television shows, and to me, Happy Days and Laverne and Shirley kind of ties back to The Honeymooners. It's that same type of same type of humor, where there's a little bit of slapstick, and it's it's very intimately set, and it's it's about somebody of humble of a humble lifestyle, you know they're not they're not rich people, and I think it it connected with a lot of American audiences, you know during that time. Right. So kind of to sum up our list, as I said earlier, it's kind of interesting to see how ABC had 13 of the 20 shows, CBS had six, and NBC only had one, just missing out. In the top twenty, two shows for NBC, which were somewhat were pretty popular, uh, coming in at number twenty five was Chips, uh, you know, Ponch and John, the uh, you know California Highway Patrol officers, and at number twenty seven, a new show that came out that I know you and I loved to death, and that was Different Strokes. I love Different Strokes because for me it was the first time that there was a character on TV that was portrayed as my age, and that was Gary Coleman's mm-hmm. character Arnold Jackson. Yeah we were he was in the same grade that i was and that was the that was the very first time that i ever saw a kid on tv i'm like hey he's my age even though in real life he wasn't right exactly he was your age in real life but in real life is like 25 <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know but also willis his brother that, uh, that was played by todd bridges he was your 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 age yeah, on exactly. the show yeah right so for us it was like wow and it was such a funny show it it again it was uh you know based on um, a rich father who is widowed has a daughter. His uh, his maid, as uh, you know, his, uh, the lady took care of the house. She passes away. She leaves the kids to Mister Drummond, and mm-hmm. so he brings these kids in with open arms. Ends up eventually adopting them later on in the show. But right. yeah, it's sort of the trials and tribulations in the very beginning of of, of kids that came from sort of humble beginnings mm-hmm. in Harlem, and now all of a sudden they're they're uh, they go from from poor to very rich right right so it had you know a, a super a long run very popular um it's something where you will still hear many gen xers throughout the term what you talking about willis hmm. i i think i do that frequently and i i like the fact that the the young folks don't always get it but that that's okay you know that's how you expose them to something new so these are so these are shows that were popular um and you know once again, I said ABC dominated. CBS was holding their own. NBC seemed to be getting shellacked. However, if you look at late night, see, uh, NBC dominated late night mm-hmm. during this era. Uh, the two shows in particular, Saturday Night Live, which was at its absolute peak in 1978, 1979. These are the classic 
John Belushi years, you know, Dan Aykroyd, Bill Murray, uh, Gilda Radner, mm-hmm. Lorraine Newman, the, uh, Garrett Morris. Th- this is the, the golden era of SNL. And I saw a stat where if you compare what SNL does today to what the ratings were back then, it is back then it was three times the viewership of what they have now. It, it, you could not escape that in the pop culture, SNL. Now, SNL was a very much a show that was not geared towards kids, mm-hmm. you know, especially in the late 70s. And it's, it's not something that kids our age were watching. Mm-hmm. However, you and I had parents who would fall asleep with the television on. <laughs> <laughs> so on Saturday nights, what I would do, uh, I would, you know, because SNL would come on at, at 11.30 after the news, our parents would always fall asleep with the news on. I'd, I'd go uh, down and they'd have the TV on in their bedroom. I'd crouch down at the end of the bed and I'd watch SNL. And then me uh, and, and some of my friends, we'd go to school and we'd recite the lines mm-hmm. from SNL, which most of the other 10-year-olds did not get at all. But uh, if we would, we've talked about Mr. Bill. If you did, you were cool. Yeah, that's right. Because yeah. the kids are like, what are they talking about? <laughs> right. So that, you know, S- SNL um, is, is something that, you know, for me, I, you know, I was watching that pretty young. Yeah. Yeah. And you, uh, at the very beginning of, of this show, you had talked about Gen X being very television, uh, being television savvy. And we all watch a lot of the same shows because there weren't as many channels on mm-hmm. TV at the time. I think what separates us from the baby boomers, because the baby boomers were really starting to get into television also, but I think the biggest difference between baby boomers and Gen X is the fact that Gen X, you're probably looking at more TVs in the house. You know, we had portable TVs now. Right. We could pick a TV up. You couldn't, you couldn't do that in the early 70s. The thing weighed a couple hundred pounds. And it was at this time where you and I, uh, we would save up our money. And we would get our own tiny little black and white television mm-hmm. and that we could put in our room. Yeah. So I think you're right. This is, you go back to the 50s and the 60s, you may have had one television in the house and everyone had to gather around it and you might fight over the channels. But you're starting to, as Gen Xers, get to the point now where there are multiple devices in a household. Yeah. All right, Saturday Night Live, one of the dominant shows. The other dominant show was the King of Light Night, Johnny Carson, The Tonight Show. Uh, yet again, another show that I would wait for my our parents to fall asleep to, and I would go down and I would watch, and I would watch Burt Reynolds and Dom DeLuise and Don Rickles and Henny Youngman. Once again, I the, the, I would throw out Henny Youngman jokes at school as a 10-year-old. I, I don't know that they were funny to the other kids, but I thought they were hilarious. <laughs> And I'm going back and watch YouTube and to watch Rodney Dangerfield in the mid to late 70s. Mm-hmm. And it's not so much even the jokes that he's telling because they are funny. But it's his delivery. Watch Johnny's yeah. reaction. Yeah. And Johnny is just losing it. And <laughs> how many? You don't see many hosts do that, especially somebody who had been as established as, as Johnny Carson right. because he was the king of NBC at that time. He was. He, he was the, the, probably the most important um, talent that they had. Saturday Night Live came into existence because Johnny Carson got tired of them running uh, Tonight Show reruns on Saturday nights. Mm. That's the only reason why Saturday Night Live was created, and they gave that show to Lauren Michaels. Uh, In the book on the history of SNL, uh, Dick Ebersol is is quoted prominently as the the whole storyline behind how it was put together. But 
The whole meeting was they drove out, they flew out to the West Coast, met with Johnny Carson and his manager. Johnny was sick and tired of basically putting his image out there on TV, not getting paid for it. So the NBC decided, okay, we've got to come up with something else for Saturday nights, and that's, that's how the evolution of the show came into being. Another show, uh, I'm not sure if you were, were going to comment on this, but I, I do want to mention this because it did run on, on Friday nights, was Burt Sugarman's The Midnight Special. True. I was not going to mention that. That's and, a good one. And The Midnight Special became one of my favorite shows, especially now, today, if you you have you you want to go back and watch YouTube, go back and and YouTube, Bert Sugarman's The Midnight Special. What a treasure of of a show! And they're all live performances. There's no lip syncing, mm-hmm. which at the time was really that, that was not done. These these acts are performing live, and it was such an an eclectic group of you could go from hard rock from Aerosmith to disco to they would just have so many different types of singers. You could have you could have vocalists. They had comedians perform, but for the most part, it was driven by music. And you go back, and those live performances are are unbelievably good. So you you say that just within the last week, I was on YouTube and I was looking at the midnight special, and I put in for Journey, mm-hmm. and they they did a performance of uh, feeling that way anytime live. How big was Near Sean's afro at the it, time? It was huge. <laughs> it, was, it, it, it was impressive. But what was even more impressive to me was Steve Perry's voice. Oh, yeah. I mean, the, the fact he he's hitting these high notes live mm-hmm. in front of millions of people. And he is he is spot on. And you can tell it's live. Mm-hmm. There's... There's the you know the little bit of, of nuance in a live show which I like and I miss when everything has to be so perfect and you can tell that this is a tight band playing with each other and it 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 just shows you what a, a bunch of talented musicians you know can produce uh, where you know you might have somebody that's just packaged and you know they might look good and they might sound. You can get a sound in the studio, but mm-hmm. be able to recreate that live is pretty amazing. Those performers back then, those those singers, and I know the disco era got mocked, but there are some really powerful and incredible singing voices that came in that era. I watched Donna Summer on on the uh, Midnight Special. She sang the song "Last Last Dance," and it just her voice is incredible. Her she has she does it with such effortlessness and. and uh, our kids' generation remembers Whitney Houston, mm-hmm. and but Donna Summer, she's right there. I mean, she's right there. And Natalie Cole performed on the Midnight Special, and watching. So there are a lot of, you know, I was kind of drawn towards the disco type music at the time, mm-hmm. especially performed live. Casey and the Sunshine Band performed uh, on the Midnight Special, fan. and we were we were, but the the hard rock acts were on there too. Uh, Ted Nugent was on the Midnight Special. Mm-hmm. I watched that one. So it's just such a, and it, you didn't ever, you really didn't know who was going to be on from one week to the next. And true to Gen X form, I think we all kind of we liked it because it was different types of music. It was all on the radio, and it, you know you you could you could watch Sticks one week, you could watch Disco the next week. It was just it was a very cool show for me. Right, right. So you know, it just goes to show that there are other. Other types of, you know, shows being put out there, not just during primetime, which is what you'll get the big ratings for. And I know you have a list of some other shows that, uh, some daytime shows. Yeah, I, I was going to talk about uh, daytime shows, and, and but I also wanted to sort of talk about the difference from 
TV because of the evolution of network TV at that time. So in 1978, I, I just wanted to point this out. I already said the Showtime debuted in 1970. Mm -hmm. 1978 was also the first time the Super Bowl was played at night when the uh, Dallas Cowboys defeated the Denver Broncos. That, before that, the Super Bowl was only played during the day. And now you think about it is the Super Bowl is always a nightly event, and that was the first time that it was ever played in the evening. So um, daytime TV, particularly Saturday TV for me, was, uh, was cartoon day. And mm -hmm. we'll, like I said, we'll probably focus on that again. But there were some shows that, that we ended up really loving at that time, two of which uh, American Bandstand, um, Soul Train, which, yeah. which we like to watch. Right. And these shows that came out of syndication that weren't attached to any particular network, such as Candid Camera, Hee Haw, The Muppet Show, and This Week in Baseball, because we, you know, we, were, we were big baseball fans as little kids, as we still are today. Mm -hmm. And this is all pre-ESPN, so if you wanted to see highlights of, of uh, you know, teams other than our, our team, the Phillies, you know, This Week in Baseball is where you kind of get exposed to seeing some of those other players. A lot of times you would watch This Week in Baseball, and it would be the precursor to the National Saturday yeah. Game of the Week. Right. Which sometimes, it, for a long time, it was on NBC. Most of our most of our era generation, it was it was on NBC. It ended, ended up moving over to CBS, but for NBC, it was typically uh, Joe Gargiola, Vince mm -hmm. Scully did it a lot. Tony Kubek, Bob right. Costas eventually uh, went and did it. But this week in baseball, that was all that was pure Mel Allen. Mm -hmm. And as a kid, I had no idea who Mel Allen was. It wasn't until I read about Mel Allen at a later time that I realized this guy is one of the greatest. Baseball play-by-play -play announcers of all time. I had no idea. I didn't know he who was Mel affiliated Allen was. with the Yankees. Yeah, yeah. I just remember him from this week. You know, hello everyone. This is, welcome to this week in baseball, and he kind of had that southern drawl mm -hmm. to him. And it was it was a it was about the only highlight package that you could watch from, like you said, teams that played around the league. Other than that, you you had like the statistics that you would see in the newspaper, and that's how you f were able to follow players. But you didn't really get a chance to watch the great players that weren't in your town or in your league or division. Right. And, you know, I was, as you remember, I, I really was into Rod Carew as a baseball player. And I wasn't going to get to see the Minnesota Twins play very often. You know, when, when Carew eventually went over and played with the Angels in 79, you know, sure, they, they became a, um, you know, playoff team. So we got to see them a little bit on, on television then. But for the most part, you saw them this week in baseball. And mm -hmm. the, the reason I, you know, thought crew was so cool was because the first all-star game I ever watched was 1978 and rod crew let off the game with a triple and his next time up he hit a triple and you know i was really intrigued he had that unique batting stance mm -hmm. so if i wanted to watch players like that especially american league because you know as you know following the phillies they're a national league team so i didn't get to see the american league teams that often except for the weekly game or for the playoffs yeah the second show that i wanted to touch on that was in syndication was the muppet show and the Muppet Show, everybody, you know, if you're Gen X and you have kids, your kids know who the Muppets are. They somehow have been able to span the test of time. This show was only on really for a few seasons, but it keeps coming back and forth and back and forth. So many good, funny characters. Mm -hmm. As a kid, it, it had, you know, with the Muppets, it was created by Jim Henson. It I, we, we said shows that had elements for everybody. There were enough adult jokes with the Muppets that the parents got and thought were funny, but then it had 
the stuff that the kids all thought was great too. I love the Muppet Show. And then they would always have a guest star every week. Right, right. Exactly. Kind of like the Love Boat. Right. You know, we talked about where with the Love Boat, you always kind of look forward to seeing who the guest stars were. And that's how the Muppet Show was. Yeah. And it, it was it was on, like I said, only for a few seasons, but it was very popular. And then this this created a spinoff movie from the TV show, which was the Muppet movie, which was very well received. And every about every five or 10 years, the, the Muppets will make a comeback on TV and most recently, I think the last show that came out was about six, seven seasons ago. They they tried to create like an office type mm-hmm. show that was the Muppets. Yeah, I didn't and like it. The first couple of episodes I thought had some promise, but then it kind of took a turn for the worse. But yeah, they, him and uh, Kermit and Miss Piggy were on the outs, and right, yeah. So anyway, but that was that was one of my favorite shows as a kid. The, the third show I really wanted to talk about was Hee Haw. And Hee Haw is a show that was uh, kind of formulated after a Rowan and Martin's Laugh-In. And that's what the premise of the show was. They wanted to create sort of a, a Southern country-type humor that was formatted the same way as what Laugh-In was. Laugh-In was a show that had a lot of quick jokes, like stuff that came at you visually very fast. And Hee Haw was, was formatted very much the same way. It debuted on CBS, but was only on there for a couple of seasons. But then they were really... Uh, Hee Haw was one of the very first shows to hit syndication and actually be more successful and have a much longer run. This ran into the 90s. It was a show that really exposed us to country music. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it even though I was not, you know, I would not have ever said that country music was my main uh, style of music. I had an appreciation for artists uh, like Johnny Cash. Uh, you know, we talked about Dukes of Hazzard with you know, Waylon Jennings was the voice of the Dukes of Hazard. I knew Waylon Jennings from from Hee Haw. They, it, you're right, it had the same formula. It had the same kind of you know slapstick jokes, and it you know had the pretty girls, and it was, and then you have little you know, and now a song from Conway Twitty. Yep. You know, you'd always break into <laughs> something, and it it was definitely a show that we watched as a family. It was a show that our dad liked. Our dad really enjoyed this show because he he was a big fan of country music. And we would watch the show, and he would point out the singers, and we'd be like, yeah, yeah, we what, don't care. Whatever. Yeah, but Com- deep down, we were, we were paying attention. Co- you know, Buck Owens and, and Roy Clark. One's a pick and one's a grinning. That's right. They were the two hosts of the show. And, of course, you know, Blues, Despair, and Agony on Me was one of my favorite was one of my favorite skits. And uh, you'd done another, and, of course, you did the Raspberry, and <laughs> you were gone. Mm-hmm. That was – it was – like I said, it was, it, was, um, it was corny. It was set in a cornfield. Right. Uh, but it was – it was always it was a funny show had a lot of characters that if you followed like the southern comedic circuit like Minnie pearl mm-hmm. and you're talking about comedy legends down south grandpa jones and this was really the very first time that you know as a national audience as, a, as kids we got to see sort of that that southern humor and you know, our dad being a big country music fan it it really was a, a show that our family enjoyed it was, it was. And, you know, you know, the fact that it had such a, a long run, I think, speaks to it. It's uh, also one of those things where you talk about how it's on, you know, wasn't just on one network at one time slot. It Keep in mind, this was something that you had to, like, schedule to see. So it, it remained popular, remained on the air with people having to block it out and find it and set aside the time to watch the show. Yeah. All right, Sean, do you want to run down the top 20 again from uh, the Nielsen ratings? Okay, so the top 20, and this is from 1978 to 1979. So coming in at number 20, the Dukes of Hazard. 
19, Soap. 18, One Day at a Time. 17, The Love Boat. 16 was Barney Miller. 15, ABC Sunday Night Movie. 14, Little House on the Prairie. 13 was Alice. Number 12 was Charlie's Angels. 11 was Eight is Enough. 10, Taxi. Number 9 was All in the Family. Number 8, The Ropers. MASH came in at 7. Number 6 was 60 Minutes. Number 5 was Angie. Number 4, Happy Days. Mork and Mindy was in at 3. Number 2 was Three's Company. And the number 1 show from 1978 to 79, Laverne and Shirley. All right, we're going to wrap things up for this week. And we really hope you enjoyed our, our talk about 1970s television. Any last thoughts, Sean? Uh, you know, it's just, you know, it's it's interesting how, you know, TV played such a huge part in, in Gen X. You know, a lot of us, well, not us in particular, but there were a lot of kids that were kind of the latchkey kids that might go home and immediately turn on the television. So it's something that we grew up with. And, um, you know, there's a lot of good memories, and not, not just from shows, because you can have that now, but getting gathering together as a family, because I can still remember the shows that we did sit around you and me and, and our sister Lori and our mom and dad. There were shows that we watched as a family, and I think that definitely happened to, with a lot of families in the 1970s. Yeah, it sort of real, it became like the end of an era. Even though cable television brought more variety, it took away, it, it kind of compartmentalized TV for older people, younger people, sure. for kids. And, and I think it did, it did change it, where you had producers like Aaron Spelling, uh, Norman Lear, and uh, Gary Marshall who were able to create shows that that appealed to broad audience from old and young. And uh, that, was, that was a really special gift. And I think as as people growing up in that era, I think we're very fortunate to see television like that. I would agree with that. And, you know, that's kind of the reason why we want to focus on television as our second overall episode is because, you know, we're focusing on pop culture. And the, the pop culture that, that we experience as Gen Xers from television, you know, definitely influenced us and in, in, in our thought, our style, you know, what we were listening to. You talked about the Midnight Special. You know, these are, these are all things that were, were presented to us on television. And I think, you know, there's, there's so many kind of things that we probably still even hold on today. Like, like I said, we still throw out the lines from our, the shows from 40 plus years ago, 50, 45 years ago. Kiss my grit, Sean. That's right. <laughs> Hey, Sit on it, Scott. We really appreciate you listening and hope you want to tune in next week where our topic is going to be the 1984 Summer Olympics. So thank you for listening to Gen X Playback. I am Sean Scott. And I am Scott Sean. We thank you very much for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Thanks. See you.